a president showing empathy, talking about loss, discussing pain, discussing sacrifice. He used words like science and masks. And he has a vision that's not about himself. It's a good start. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. And like to you, and think to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 362 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. It's been one year of COVID. It's been one long year of COVID. A year like no other. We've lost family. We've lost friends. Unfathomable loss. Businesses we've spent a lifetime building. Homes that we could no longer afford. Zoom has replaced family dinners and family events. A year we'll never forget and wish we could. The fact that you are still listening to this program means more to me than I can say. I'm thankful you are safe and sound. I'm hoping your family is as well. Thank you for being there. Okay, on to this week's episode. Andrew Cuomo is not the only big state governor fighting for his political life. Some 3,000 miles to the west is California, where Governor Gavin Newsom is trying to fight off a recall attempt. Tens of thousands of companies have permanently closed, and almost half of our remaining small businesses are at risk of closing. Newsom's failed leadership has destroyed California families. Recall Gavin Newsom. Join the fight and sign the petition. Like Cuomo, Newsom won a landslide election in 2018. He got 62% of the vote, beating his Republican opponent by 3 million votes. Not long after he was sworn in, there was talk of Newsom as a White House hopeful. And then came COVID-19, and with it, much of Newsom's plans for the future. To stop the spread of the virus, Newsom shut down many industries and businesses, closed the schools, and curtailed many outdoor activities. But what seems to have really energized the recall folks was a birthday party Newsom attended last November where a bunch of people sat closely together inside a fancy schmancy restaurant. Exactly the sort of behavior Newsom has been warning against. So what's going to happen? Will Newsom suffer the same fate as Gray Davis, the Democratic governor who was recalled in 2003? Can he survive? John Myers is the Sacramento bureau chief of the Los Angeles Times and joins us now. What do you think, John? Uh, little deja vu going on here? It is. Uh, it's the Yogi Berra version, right? Deja vu all over again. I mean, um, you know, there are similarities to 2003 when Arnold Schwarzenegger won that uh, historic recall election here in California. There's some differences, and certainly we can talk about that. But I got to tell you, Ken, I mean, for people who like politics, like you and, and me and, and others who listen to this, to this uh, program, the thing that gets overlooked about what's happened here for Newsom and in California is that in most uh, instances of submitting a, a recall petition and having people sign it, this thing would have been over a long time ago. But a judge, a state judge in Sacramento, gave the proponents of this extra time because of the pandemic to circulate it and collect signatures. And boy, 
that has meant the difference. And, you know, uh, uh, that is a phenomenal thing. Uh, Gavin Newsom would have escaped completely out of this, but now it's facing this historic moment to, as you said, be only the second governor in California history to face a recall election, only the fourth governor, as I know you as a political historian would know, to have ever faced one potentially in the state, in the, in the country's history. Well, you know, that's what's interesting, because when they first introduced the recall pe- petition, it was in February of 2020, before the pandemic was a pandemic. What was the reasoning for the recall back then? It was basically the same reasons, uh, again, to our 2003 comparison that you saw 18 years ago. And it's and it's somewhat of a laundry list of conservative uh, criticisms of Newsom and of California government. Uh, concerns about water for farmers, concerns about undocumented immigrants and illegal immigration, uh, concerns about uh, government that spends too much money. I don't want to say that they were not serious concerns, but they were fairly garden-variety concerns that a conservative activist would have. The pandemic, to your point, was not on anyone's radar, hadn't actually happened yet, or we were just getting stirrings of things across the globe. And the pandemic has changed this in so many ways. It's changed the conversation, and as I said with the court ruling, it's changed the process. And I think now the question becomes, what does it mean for the eventual outcome should it get on the ballot? And I don't know if this is the point to say it, but I think the odds are this gets on the California ballot by year's end. Now, we know that the uh, the deadline for getting signatures is March 17th, less than a week away, and then they have to verify them. But as far as you see, it looks like they, they're going to have the numbers. I think so. I mean, we don't have uh, any way to independently verify some of the signatures they've collected. There's a lag time between when they turn them in to uh, local and state elections officials, and those signatures are, are verified to make sure they are, in fact, registered California voters. But if you look at the, um, the validity rate, how many of those have been valid of the ones already turned in, it's really high, somewhere around 84 percent of the signatures. That's really high for ballot measure campaigns in California. And you look at what they have collected and what we know they've turned in, and I think this thing is going to the ballot. Um, we won't know. We may not know, I should say, until uh, perhaps even late in April because all of those signatures have to be verified, and they've got time to do that. But uh, the question I think here, really two questions I would say, Ken, for Gavin Newsom are when the election will be. I would guess it's somewhere in the fall, uh, October, November, if I had to guess, depending on the calendar. And then also what's going on in California at that time and what do voters feel about the state of California, so to speak, and therefore what do they think Gavin Newsom is to blame for or gets credit for? It just seems like the more time this effort takes, the more time Newsom may have to make sure that people – well, first of all, Newsom will have more time to make sure that people get the vaccine, more businesses and schools and things like that will open up. In other words, by the time Californians go to vote – Newsom may be in a much better position politically than he is now. I think you're right, and I think that's what a a lot of folks are thinking. Uh, And I think if you're on the Gavin Newsom team, you think that if this election can just hang on a little bit, that, you know, vaccination rates will improve and uh, uh, public health and the economy uh, will improve in California. But I want to urge a, a bit of caution on that. Because, as I saw in 2003, remember covering that one very well with uh, then-Governor Gray Davis in charge, small events or things that seem small at the time in recall land have a tendency to snowball. And the unexpected slip-up, the unexpected problem or mistake uh, could cost Newsom dearly. 
uh, with people who are already kind of frustrated and looking for someone to blame. That's not to say that Newsom doesn't deserve some blame. I'm not taking a side in the recall, but clearly he's the guy at the top of the ticket. He's the guy they think about. So, you know, it's 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 good for a lot of the public health uh, dynamic that you're talking about. But boy, Newsom has got to play this one right. He's got to not have any missteps because missteps can get very big in something like this where people are already worked up. Well, I suppose the party at the French Laundry restaurant is a perfect example of things you should not be doing if there's a recall campaign going on. I think so, too. I got to tell you, you know, just as, uh, uh, to set the, the tone for that, you know, and again, talking to someone like you who appreciates the, the long arc of political history, that has got to be one of the biggest political blunders I've ever covered as a journalist in 25 plus years. I mean, it was just a moment that crystallized everything that people could easily relate to about privilege, about uh, political hypocrisy, um, about access, uh, it, and, you know, and people who were struggling. And I mean, and this is a lo- this is a restaurant we should point out to, to listeners where easily, you know, you can buy a $700, $800 uh, entree. Uh, I mean, this is not for the faint of heart. And this was just an unforced error, one of the biggest unforced errors. And so it has, it has continued to be hung around his neck as this recall has moved forward. We should point out that on Tuesday night, the governor, you know, gave his state of the state message where he admitted making mistakes, but otherwise sounded determined. We've made mistakes. I, I have made mistakes. But we own them. We learn from them. And we never stop trying. After all, that's, that's the California spirit. We're bent, but not broken. Bloodied, but unbowed. Resolved to make brighter days ahead. And not to let the pain of last year to deter us from the hopefulness of tomorrow. Look, the state of our state, it remains determined. I remain determined. And I just want you to know, we're not going to change course just because of, of a few naysayers and, and doomsdayers. So to the California critics out there who are promoting partisan political power grabs with outdated prejudices and rejecting everything that makes California truly great, we say this. We will not be distracted from getting shots in arms and our economy booming again. This is a fight for California's future. I think the thing that stood out to me in that speech the most was uh, this desire to pivot, to change the conversation, or to use a negative as a positive, to say we've had all these bad times, but look, we are coming out of it. Uh, this was the first speech of a political season for Gavin Newsom, and it was the shortest speech he's delivered in recent times. i got to tell that to the listeners, too. I mean, this governor has been known for these 60, 70, 80-minute presentations on live streams about the epidemic. This was like a 28, 29-minute speech. But this was clearly designed to say, I get it, things have been bad and things are getting better. And, uh, you know, the real question, of course, is do Californians believe that in the weeks and months to come? I watched watched the address. He did address the fact uh, that, that people of color are far more affected by the virus, by by the inability to get a vaccine than white people are. So even though the recall is sponsored and, and backed by conservatives, I wonder if the many you know, people, the people of color who are not getting the treatment they need might actually vote for the recall. You know, I think it's, uh, that, that's a great question, and I think it's one that we, we just don't know the answer you know, until we kind of see how the, the battle lines, so to speak, form out. And again, with the assumption that this recall measure qualifies for the, for the statewide ballot here in California this year, I think that the pandemic, as it has in so many parts of the country, 
but especially here in California, has really uh, laid bare, you know, some of the inequities, obviously by by income, but by race, by ethnicity. Um, and you look at the polling in California, and you find a, a, a fascinating but clear divide between uh, white Californians and the large group of Latino Californians, which, of course, is, is the most dominant demographic group in the state at this point. You look at a lot of Latino families, and for instance, on the, on the issue of schools and reopening, they are worried about sending their kids back. And they're worried because in their communities, COVID-19 has been uh, far worse than it has been in affluent and white communities. And so, you know, I think that the governor on that topic, for example, on schools, has engaged, but he's engaged late. And he's talked about getting kids back, but he's not talked as much about the vaccines for teachers until he had to do it because he kind of got pushed into that kind of a longer conversation about state government in California. And I think it's just going to it's just hard to know how people will be looking at these issues from their vantage point um, in that time to come. I mean, Gavin Newsom did win. He did win with 62 percent of the vote in 2018. And there were a lot of Latino votes for him. Um, but I think it remains to be seen how people feel about this and whether they feel like that this, this pandemic has split people along lines that they didn't realize existed. Well, you mentioned polling, and, and I mean, this is just staggering to look at this number. Five months ago, his approval rating was at 64%. Now it's down to 46%. That, that's a pretty massive drop. It is. And also in the same poll that I think you're referencing, one that, uh, that we reported on in conjunction, it was done by uh, UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies. There were uh, a substantial number of people. I mean, some people would say not enough, but still there were a substantial, you know, around one third of the people surveyed who were already ready to remove him from office in a recall election. Uh, and his support uh, in a recall election was stronger than his opposition but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a majority of those who were sampled in this poll. And so there's a real weakness for the governor here. And I think when you talk to people around him, they get it. The question is, is how do they explain it here? And that Tuesday night speech, that state of the state speech, as I said, I think was their first effort to, um, to acknowledge that things are going to get better. They know things have been tough. I will say in that speech, Ken, he talked about this being about partisan naysayers and partisan doomsayers, which was the only way he got close to talking about the recall. They want people to believe this is a Republican effort. They're right that there are Republicans behind it and financing it. But I have met average Californian neighbors of mine who are liberal Democrats who are considering signing that petition. So this is not just a partisan thing. And Newsom needs to make it that way and uh, accelerate that conversation, I think, to get through it. I mean, I was going to ask you whether the state of the state address helped his cause. But first of all, I don't even know if anyone actually listens to a state of the state address. But but more importantly, though, you know, he gave the address at Dodger Stadium and it was, you know, a completely empty Dodger Stadium rather than in Sacramento. I understand the reasons why, you know, there are COVID restrictions uh, barred him from addressing the joint session in Sacramento. But but and I think Newsom made the point that there were as many Californians who died of the virus as there were seats at Dodger Stadium. But I was looking at it, and I kept staring at the emptiness of the stadium. The, like, right. It just, it seemed, I don't know if the word is distracting or overwhelming, but what was your take? I, I felt a little bit of the same way. I mean, this has been a, an interesting debate uh, in the immediate aftermath of the speech. I've, had, I've talked to people in social media. I've talked to other uh, political strategists. 
everybody knows what he was trying to do, which I think is what you're saying here, and they understand the intention, the intent of that image. I felt as though um, it didn't convey optimism. Um, I think it was, to your point, it was a reminder of uh, of how life is different, and and so I, you know, my observation is I don't think it hit the mark that he wanted it to hit. I fully expected he would do this speech on the road at a vaccination clinic or or something to that effect. I mean, of course, these speeches, other governors give them, they're conducted in state houses. And, you know, and of course, you can't really do that in public health conditions now. But I I, I don't know that it it worked either. I know that they wanted people to think about that this stadium could someday soon have people back in it. But to your point, I kind of kept looking at the empty seats and thinking about, wow, life is so different. And is that what you want? That's you know, I think that's the challenging part of the uh, the imagery there. And I think of how fast his political fortunes have fallen. You know, I mean, we, we, everybody in the East, of course, is talking about about uh, Andrew Cuomo and how his a year ago he was godlike, and now he's you know on the brink of being forced to resign. And when Newsom came in, I mean, I mean, Jerry Brown basically left the office and left office with the state in good shape. And then Newsom seems, you know, to have found himself having to confront crises he never expected. It just seems nonstop. And I'm just aware of that, the contrast between the, the, the kind of piece that, that Jerry Brown went through and how that piece has yeah. disappeared quickly. Yeah, I, I would just, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a good point because, I mean, I think that even Newsom's biggest critics, if they are being fair, will point out that he has confronted all of these things that no one has ever confronted all at once. Wildfires in California, um, the pandemic power being shut off because of high winds and threats of wildfire, a homelessness situation that kept getting worse and worse in in large cities in Los Angeles and San Francisco especially. Um, All of these crises that all landed on him. I mean, I'm reminded of Jerry Brown before he left one day talking about that the state's economy would get worse at some point because it always does. And he made this joke that all the reporters laughed about, about, you know, that the only thing in the future is dark and more darkness and good luck, baby, whoever has to deal with that. And of course, Gavin Newsom had to deal with that. Um, so a lot of this is not of Newsom's making, but it is challenging to keep explaining this every day. I said it earlier in our conversation that, you know, people are looking at the person at the top of the ticket. They're looking for where the buck stops. And I think the other challenge here, too, is that um, Newsom has had large political aspirations. People have talked about him with the White House, which seems unlikely now with California's other uh, native politician, Kamala Harris, being the vice president of the United States. But this is a tough place for for Newsom. And I think uh, I think it's going to be really challenging Going forward, I think he knows this is a tough slog. I think the biggest thing he – we haven't talked about this, Ken. The biggest thing that he does have in his corner right now is Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. He has a federal government that will align itself with California both ideologically and helping it. And I think you know, had we still having the fight with uh, former President Trump, it might have looked good for headlines, but it wasn't good for a lot of the other things that Newsom will need. Gray Davis, the man recalled by voters 18 years ago, still to this day points out, and I talked to former Governor Davis just a few days ago, that George W. Bush was president and did nothing to help him, and it made it probably only worse in that recall election in 2003. Gavin Newsom has Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and we've already heard some support from this administration, and I think we will hear more. And I think that plus all of the COVID uh, assistance that the state will get 
are big factors in his corner should this go forward. Now let me ask you something about possible candidates. I remember with the great Davis recall, the Democrats weren't sure that he would survive. So the lieutenant governor, right, Cruz Bustamante, was among the 400,000 candidates on the ballot. Uh, But Davis went down and so did Bustamante. And as you said, that's how we got Arnold Schwarzenegger. But I guess we don't we won't know anything until we see if it's on the ballot. But I'm just wondering, would the Democrats put up a major candidate just in case that the, the, the recall was was gaining steam? It, it, is the, it is the question that will be uh, on the horizon if this recall election happens. And of course, as I've said, uh, goodness, I could be wrong. We think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen. It's the question that will be on the horizon. It was the same problem as you referenced there, Ken, that happened in 2003. It is almost Shakespearean to me in, its, uh, in, in the dilemma. Um, some astute listener will tell me I'm way off base on that, but it feels it feels like a, a, a drama of the ages because you don't want to uh, you don't want to undercut your leader by having someone else out there saying I could do a better job, but you run a huge risk of not having an alternative for voters who may like Democrats but may not like this Democrat, and that is the challenge they faced in 2003. It was an ugly, nasty squabble with the lieutenant governor of the state who did not necessarily get along with the governor and, you know, and put his hat in there uh, after Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, put his hat out there. Um, The Democratic Party in California is insisting that they are all united in opposing this recall. But to your point, if this qualifies for the ballot and if we're going to have an election, and last time we had 135 candidates on the other part of the ballot, which, you know, I guess you can remember we had everybody from Gary Coleman to uh, uh, Ariana Huffington. Uh, yeah, Ariana Huffington, uh, Peter Uberoff, the baseball commissioner. I mean, goodness gracious, Larry Flint. Anyway, um, if you get to that point again, there's going to be enormous pressure. And I am looking for some Democrat with name ID or perhaps an independent, unaffiliated Californian with name ID who would step forward. That was kind of the Arnold Schwarzenegger model, even though he had had Republican by his name. That's the real question for Democrats. That's the real danger for Newsom, that someone says, I love you, guy, but you're not polling well. We can't let we can't go down with the ship. Let me ask you one final question, and I don't I don't think it's answerable, but I just wonder about this. After Donald Trump was impeached for the second time, there was a fear that impeachment may become a tool that will be widely used by a House majority against a, a president of another party. You know, it will be a common tactic uh, to wage against the, the president they don't like. Do you think the same could be said about a recall? I think it's possible. I think that um, I think a lot of people point out rightly so that of the states that have a provision that allow you to recall a governor, um, you know, and I referenced earlier in the conversation, it's only happened four times in American history. You know this, two of them, well, three so far, I should say, excuse me, uh, one in California, one in North Dakota, one of Scott Walker in Wisconsin. They weren't all successful. But of the states that have a recall provision, California has the easiest one to get it to the ballot for a governor. Twelve percent of the, sign- of the uh, votes cast in the most recent gubernatorial elections. So that's about 1.5 million signatures in a state of 21 million voters. That's pretty darn easy in a lot of cases. That said, I think you need um, a special circumstance to really make this happen. There are so many of these petitions filed 
that never make it. Every governor since um, 1960 has faced a recall effort, and they haven't been successful. In 2003, the um, existential crisis was not only you know a feeling that California's best days were behind it, but Daryl Issa, a congressman from Southern California who wanted to be governor, put his own money in it to gather signatures, and it got on the ballot. This time, the unexpected X factor is this pandemic and the way the pandemic is impacting Californians. I still think that they're rare, that they're going to be rare, but you raise the right question. Uh, if you do it now, why won't you do it again, and why won't somebody put money into it? And I guess we'll see. John Myers is the Sacramento Bureau Chief of the Los Angeles Times. John, um, I can't recall a better observer of California <laughs> politics than you. Well, I appreciate your uh, special election uh, uh, reference there to me, and I always enjoy talking to you. I look forward to it the next time. The announcement on Monday by Missouri Senator Roy Blunt that he won't seek re-election next year is unlikely going to result in a Democratic pickup. There may be a divisive battle among Missouri Republicans for the nomination, but regardless, the state is solid red and is likely to stay that way for quite a while. Still, Blunt's announcement caught political observers by surprise. He had told reporters earlier this year that he was running. But given his close relationship with Senate GOP leader Mitch McConnell, he was targeted by pro-Trump Republicans who promised a primary challenge. Eric Greitens, a former governor, hinted last week that he was ready to challenge Blunt, claiming that the senator, by accepting Joe Biden had won the presidency fair and square, and by criticizing Donald Trump for his role in the January 6th insurrection, had betrayed Missourians. It's still not clear if that was more of a betrayal than what Greitens did, who cheated on his wife in a lurid sex scandal and was forced to resign the governorship in 2018. But we'll let the voters decide, should it come to that. First, let's deal with Roy Blunt's farewell. On Monday, he released a video statement. After 14 general election victories, three to county office, seven to the United States House of Representatives, and four statewide elections, I won't be a candidate for re-election to the United States Senate next year. I want to thank my family and thank the great team that came together to help me work for you. Most importantly, thanks to Missourians, whether you voted for me or not, for the opportunity to work for you and a better future for our state and our country. Later, when pressed by reporters about the political climate in the country, Blunt was quite frank. I think the country in the last decade or so has sort of fallen off the edge of too many politicians saying, if you'll vote for me, I'll never compromise on anything. And the failure, that, that's a philosophy that particularly does not work in a democracy. Blunt is now the fifth Republican senator who has said he won't seek re-election next year. And like one of them, Ohio's Rob Portman, Blunt comes from the establishment wing of the party, more interested in getting things done rather than tossing bombs and raising the rhetoric level. Steve Kraske is a political reporter and host of Up to Date, a daily talk show on radio station KCUR in Kansas City. Steve, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Ken, it's always great to be with you. Well, thank you. And, well, first, the obvious question. Now, were you surprised by his retirement? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think everybody was, even the insiders who watched this, uh, this situation very closely, Ken. Roy Blunt kept this decision very, very close to his vest. Uh, uh, longtime reporters were caught completely flat-footed here. And it's a, it's a big moment in Missouri politics. Uh, Roy Blunt deservedly uh, will go down in history as one of the most successful politicians uh, in state history. I mean, he's been obviously a U.S. senator uh, who was in leadership. He was a top-ranking member in the House. He was in leadership there, former Missouri Secretary of State. And once upon a time, he had a good shot at becoming governor as well. And he, his career spanned enough years that he was able to see his own son uh, elected Missouri governor back in 2004. So it's been a significant career and a storied career in many ways as well. You know, I understand if he didn't have the stomach for a primary challenge from the right, but but could he have won again? Would he have beaten Greitens in a primary? Yeah, I think he would have, Ken. Uh, as you mentioned in your intro, uh, former Governor Greitens uh, resigned in disgrace. And, I, you know, in fairness to Eric Greitens, he was Donald Trump-like before it was cool to be Donald Trump-like. I mean, when he was elected governor in 2016, he really, at the same time Donald Trump was elected president, Eric Greitens had that same style, that same cadence, if you will, of governing that Donald Trump did. And it caught a lot of people by surprise because he didn't campaign that way. But once he became governor, he was very kind of a tough guy, very macho. And it, it, it soured his relations with lawmakers very, very quickly. So, you know, having said that, you know, a lot of Trump uh, supporters in Missouri, and there are a lot of them, would have taken another look at Eric Greitens. He would have garnered some support. But I don't think it would have been enough to defeat Roy Blunt, who, again, has, uh, has proven to be an endurance politician in, in the very best sense of that idea. Do you think there's anything to the fact that, that maybe Blunt was turned off by what happened on January 6th and turned off what, how his party reacted to January 6th, with so many Republicans uh, preferring to stay loyal to a president than to the Constitution? Yeah, I think you've got to make that conclusion because, again, as you said earlier on, uh, Roy Blunt told reporters he was running for re-election. Every sign we had was he was in the race for 2022. So something changed here. It could have been what you just said, or it could have been just the long-lasting uh, influence of the Trump presidency and the impact that had on somebody like Roy Blunt, who is an institutionalist uh, in the Senate. He respects the tradition, the traditional ways of playing politics, not only in Congress, but in the White House as well. He was a big supporter of George H.W. Bush early on. Uh, so that's his kind of Republican. But Donald Trump was a, a different cup of, of tea, obviously, for, for anybody. And you just have to wonder about uh, how that wore out politicians like Roy Blunt as the Trump presidency uh, passed. And, you know, Roy Blunt did things that I thought were very uncharacteristic of Roy Blunt. He, you know, didn't uh, wasn't big on the idea of certifying the election right away. Roy Blunt's a former secretary of state in Missouri, the chief elections officer here. He knew that that election was was fair and that, and that Joe Biden was the next president. And 
and yet he didn't come out and say that right away. Maybe didn't want to anger all the Trumpies out in Missouri because maybe he was still thinking about running for reelection again. So I think the Trump presidency put uh, Roy Blunt and so many other senators like Rob Portman in positions that they weren't totally comfortable with. Uh, clearly, uh, you can't help but conclude it took a toll on Roy Blunt and contributed very much to his decision not to seek another term. Yeah, I think you just stated the obvious, that this is Donald Trump's party, and if you're not 100 percent with him, you might as well be against him. That's right. And and, and uh, to be clear, Roy Blunt gave every sign he was for Donald Trump throughout his presidency. I mean, he was on board almost every step of the way here. Uh, but still, for those of us who have covered him for a long time, you wondered how that really worked with Roy Blunt deep inside as he worked through the worked through those years. You know, you talked about Blunt being an establishment figure and working within the system. And then you think about the other Republican senator from Missouri, the more confrontational, Josh Hawley, two completely different approaches to politics. Two completely different approaches. The two said they were friends uh, and they were close. Uh, Josh Hawley issued a statement uh, after Roy Blunt's announcement uh, saying how much he appreciated Roy's friendship. But you really got to wonder how close they were in reality. And uh, they, they have such different styles, different generations, of course. Uh, Roy Blunt would be the kind of uh, senator who would go out of his way to work with someone like Josh Hawley, you wonder how much was reciprocated uh, as the first months of, of Hawley's Senate career unfolded. Is it fair to say that the Republicans who are looking at this race are, are all Trump backers, strong Trump backers? 100% can up and down the list there. In fact, on up to date my radio show out here in Kansas City, I asked that question yesterday, are any of these potential candidates are any of these institutionalists like Roy Blunt? And the answer from the panel was a resounding no. These are all people who are going to fight hard to be the most loyal and the most friendly to Donald Trump. Donald Trump carried Missouri by 16 points in one election, 19 points uh, in the first one, uh, still wildly popular in this state. Okay, so let's start with the Republicans. Let's start with Greitens. I watched an interview with him this week on Newsmax, where, of course, the anchor never brought up the sex scandal. But I suspect that if he runs, he's not going to get that kind of uh, kid glove treatment from other reporters. No, the, the press will be asking him continually about the scandal and why he's coming back and why he thinks voters may have forgiven him for what he did. And keep in mind, you know, he won a very tough uh, gubernatorial race in 2016 against a Democrat named Chris Coster, who was favored to win the race from day one until almost the very end. And arguably, again, Donald Trump, uh, his popularity in Missouri pulled Eric Greitens across the finish line as he pulled Roy Blunt across the finish line against Democrat Jason Kander the same year. Roy Blunt thought he had lost that race, even on election night, told friends that, and then was surprised to learn later that he'd actually pulled the thing out. So uh, so Eric Greitens is going to face questions from, from day one there. The, the political climate out here is different now with Trump's popularity and this willingness among so many Republicans to overlook obvious shortcomings of 
of Republican leaders like Donald Trump, like Eric Reitens. But that said, I still think uh, it'll be a tough road to hoe for him. His hope would be for a, a crowded primary among a lot of different candidates and maybe Eric Reitens still maybe the best name ID of all of them that maybe he could eke out a crowded primary. Well, Greitens was on a uh, right-wing St. Louis radio program this week, and, and uh, he was talking about what he wants the Republican Party to look like. Let me play a little bit of that tape. My strong sense is that, look, President Trump has obviously put his stamp on this party. He's clearly in the driver's seat. But yeah. there is a big fight. It's a big fight between the establishment and people who are willing to put America first, between the swamp and the career politicians and the insiders and the real fighters, not the rhinos, not the establishment. You know, we need to recognize just because somebody has an R behind their name does not mean that they're really fighting for conservatives and the American people. We need real fighters. So, OK, so who else might run? What other names have been thrown out there on the Republican side? Well, I think one big one is uh, Eric Schmidt, who is the uh, the Republican Attorney General in the state. He's uh, showing every sign that he's going to be in this race. So that's a big name to watch out here. The Secretary of State, Jay Ashcroft, uh, yes, he's the son of the former governor and U.S. Senator and Attorney General, John Ashcroft. He uh, made it clear just in the last 24 hours that he is not going to make a run for the U.S. Senate. Uh, the speculation there is that he'll be running for governor once uh, Mike Parson's term ends. Mike Parson cannot run again uh, for another term. So pencil Jay Ashcroft in for the gubernatorial race. Then I think you're going to have a whole series of other folks in the race, maybe a Congresswoman Ann Wagner from St. Louis who thought about running for the Senate a few years ago in 2016, uh, took a pass that year. She's looking at Vicki Hartzler's name, uh, the Congresswoman for, from sort of the middle part of Missouri. She uh, is said to be looking at it. Sam Graves is uh, from northern Missouri, also indicating that he will look at it, but that would surprise me if he would make that move. So uh, I expect more candidates rather than fewer candidates here, Ken, and I think we'll get more announcements in the next few weeks. You know, as soon as Roy Blunt's announcement came, I, I saw a lot of people on social media wishing that Claire McCaskill, who's now a commentator on MSNBC, would run. And now, I know since then she said she's definitely not running, but I was just thinking, given how conservative Missouri has been trending and given how liberal McCaskill has been on the air, you know, since she lost her Senate seat, I can't imagine anybody like her being a serious candidate. No, she's not going to run, Ken. You can almost go to the bank with that. She said she's not going to go. She enjoys her gig on TV. She's enjoying being a grandma to a bunch of grandkids. And, you know, she had many, many years in the public eye out here in Missouri, several decades. And I think she's had enough. And Jason Kander, who came within a couple of points of Blunt six years ago, he says he's not going to run either. He's not going to go either. Um, as you know, Ken, uh, he was going to run, launch a campaign for Kansas City mayor a year or so ago, and then very abruptly pulled out of the race, uh, citing struggles with PTSD, depression, some mental health issues. Very courageous on his part to publicly announce that and pull out of the race. He has said very clearly he's not going to do it again. He's very wrapped up working with military veterans here, not only in Missouri, but across the country, uh, and working with homeless veterans, making sure they have housing. You can also take him out of this race. 
So is there a Democrat who comes to mind who will run? Well, there's a former state senator named Scott Sifton from the Kansas City, uh, from the St. Louis area, Ken, who's uh, in the race. He's going to run. He has been talking about making a statewide run for several years. He's not very well known statewide. So at this point, uh, boy, uh, tough to see how uh, if he can be very competitive. You're just not seeing uh, you're not seeing any uh, Democrats of any stature moving forward here to take a shot. So I think what you're saying, if I hear it right, that basically it'll be the Republican primary and not the general election that'll decide who succeeds Blunt in the Senate. I don't think there's any question about it today, Ken. You know, things do change. Uh, Politics shift over time. But as we sit here and, and chat about this today, this is a Republican race for this seat, and it's going to be intense. It's going to get ugly. It's going to be very competitive. And again, I would expect uh, three, four, five candidates in that primary uh, before uh, as this thing gets going here. Steve Kraske is the political reporter and host of Up to Date, a daily talk show on radio station KCUR in Kansas City. Steve, as always, it's great having you on the program. Ken, I'm happy to do it. Call anytime. Come gather around people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone Or the times are changing It's time to reveal the answer and winner of our last trivia question, which was... Who is the most senior member of the House who won a special election to fill the seat left vacant by the death of his spouse? The answer? Doris Matsui. Her husband, California Democratic Congressman Bob Matsui died on January 1st, 2005. Two months later, she won the special election to succeed him. And the randomly selected winner is Aria Gaffari of Orange County, California. Aria wins the coveted political junkie button. Don't forget, you can always find our political blogs, trivia questions, and the political junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. going to end this program with a farewell to one of the finest political journalists television ever had to offer. For nearly 20 years during his tenure at CBS News, Roger Mudd kept us informed with great writing and tremendous insight with an authoritative delivery unsurpassed by anyone. Roger died on Tuesday, a full life at age 93. And what a career. 
He's certainly best known for his 1979 interview with Senator Edward Kennedy of Massachusetts. Kennedy was just days away from announcing a challenge to President Carter for the Democratic nomination, and Kennedy held huge leads at every poll. Then came the night of November 4, 1979, when a seemingly innocuous question from Mudd somehow stymied Kennedy. But before we get to that question, there were others during that one-hour CBS special that Kennedy had trouble with. What, uh, what's the present state of your marriage, Senator? Well, I think that uh, it's a... Uh, 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 we've had uh, uh, some uh, difficult uh, uh, times, but I think we've uh, have a, uh, we've I think uh, been able to make some uh, very good progress, and uh, uh, it's uh, I would say that it's uh, it's it's. Um, Delighted that we're able to, to share the time and the relationship that we, uh, that we do share. And there were tons of questions about Chappaquiddick, and it was clear that Mudd wasn't buying Kennedy's explanations. Do you think, Senator, that, uh, that anybody really will ever fully believe your explanation of the Chappaquiddick? Well, the, the, the problem is, is from that night, uh, I found the, 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 the conduct and behavior almost uh, sort of beyond belief myself. I mean, that's why it's been, uh, uh, but I think... But the question everyone remembers best was... Why do you want to be president? Well, I'm... Uh, were I to, to make the, uh, the announcement and uh, to run... The reasons that I would run is because I have a great belief in this country that it is as more natural resources than any nation of the world, as the greatest educated population in the world. The greatest... Mudd was also there when Bobby Kennedy announced his presidential candidacy in 1968. Good morning. We are broadcasting this morning the announcement of Democratic Senator Robert F. Kennedy of New York that he will be a candidate for the presidency. The senator is doing so in the face of almost solid opposition from the Democratic Party professionals and the state chairman. He was everywhere during his two decades at CBS. And when he wasn't out reporting, he was the chief substitute anchor for Walter Cronkite. From CBS News headquarters in New York, this is the CBS Evening News with Roger Mudd substituting for Walter Cronkite. This is the CBS Evening News with Roger Mudd substituting for Walter Cronkite, who is on assignment. But when Cronkite retired after 1980, Mudd, who was groomed as Cronkite's replacement and who had been promised a job, was passed over for Dan Rather. Mudd was bitter at the developments. He quit CBS and moved over to NBC, where he stayed for several more years before leaving for PBS. Let me play just one more CBS Open. Direct from our newsroom in Washington, in color, this is the CBS Evening News with Roger Mudd and Bert Quint in Amman, Ike Pappas in Amman, Bob Simon in London, Marvin Kalb in Washington. I played this to set up my conversation with Marvin Kalb. Marvin knew Roger Mudd well. They both worked together at CBS during its glory years. Kalb, in fact, was the last reporter recruited by the legendary Edward R. Murrow to join CBS. And, like Mudd, Kalb later moved to NBC. There was a time when the two of them co-anchored Meet the Press. 
Good day from Washington. I am Arvin Kelb. I'm Roger Mudd. And on this last Sunday before the presidential elections, we welcome you to another... I talked to Marvin Kalb briefly this week about the passing of Mudd. Well, in my judgment, Roger Mudd was first and foremost a Southern gentleman. He was also a terrific reporter, and he had a great instinct and feel for American politics. It's what he had spent a good part of his college and graduate school years studying. He wanted very much to get deeper into the subject because he simply loved it. He was a student of American politics and was delighted to report it. And it showed. I mean, every time, every time he would talk about some, some campaign or some uh, political uh, incident that happened, that you, you could see that there was like a twinkle in his eye, the fact that he just, he just loved the subject and loved reporting about it. Well, that's exactly right. He did love the subject, and that is a key thing. I remember that when I, I met Roger in the Washington Bureau after I had spent the better part of three years as the Moscow correspondent for CBS. And so I came at Washington sort of from a foreign perspective. Roger came at it because he was born here. He was a Washingtonian. He went to school here. He was totally absorbed with the city. And he loved the politics that defined the life of the city. He studied it and reported on it. And that's different, by the way, from being a reporter and covering any story. That's great when you're a good reporter. Roger was not only good, he was an expert on American politics. And toward the, uh, the mid-1960s, when CBS made a controversial, highly controversial decision to put mud on every single night, to cover what was going on on Capitol Hill with respect to the civil rights of African Americans. And the CBS people thought it was essential that the American people get a good feel for an historic debate on the Hill. And they sent their best guy up there to do it. And Roger loved it. I mean, he loved being on every night, of course. But above and beyond that, he loved the story itself. It was great fun. And uh, that was a time when Southern Democrats were doing everything they can to, to, to stall the passage of the Civil Rights Bill. Exactly, exactly. And that's what I meant when I said that Roger felt he was a part of the history of this country. He really cared about the story. I loved watching him do his stuff. He was really good. Do you have a favorite or most memorable moment with Roger? Well, I think for me, the most memorable moment, there are several, though, I have to tell you, but the most perhaps was when the two of us did meet the press um, on, at NBC. And we both went over there in the summer of 1980. <clears throat> Roger went over there with the expectation that he was going to be the principal anchor for NBC Nightly News. When John Chancellor would, re right, when John Chancellor would retired. Chancellor retired. The assumption was that Mudd would come over from CBS, where he had been disappointed, by the way, because Dan Rather beat him out as the replacement for Cronkite. And so he assumed that when Bill Small, who had been his boss at CBS, then went to NBC, 
then offered Roger, Roger the job, Roger likely absolutely assumed he was going to get the anchor job of NBC Nightly News. But one of the local guys at NBC product, Tom Brokaw, he also wanted that job. And Brokaw had been White House correspondent. He had been the anchor for the Today Show. And so the NBC crowd at NBC, so to speak, moved Brokaw in with Mudd, thinking maybe they were going to get, with Brokaw and Mudd, a repeat of Huntley Brinkley. It never worked out. And Roger was feeling very unhappy. And I asked Small whether it was possible for the two of us to anchor uh, Meet the Press. And this is something that Small always had in his mind. He sort of liked the idea of mud, domestic policy, Calb, foreign policy. And you put the two of them together and great things were going to happen. But I don't know the great things that happened. But it was a wonderful year and a half, a highlight for me with uh, Mud. He was a terrific colleague. You know, I was the other day I was watching tape of the two of you hosting Meet the Press, and this was a this was like a week before the election of 1984. But I'm looking at the screen and I'm saying, what what the heck are the, those two guys from CBS doing on NBC? <laughs> I can tell you what I can tell you why I was there. Um, when my contract was up at the end of in the middle of 1980. Um, Bill Small had been my boss at CBS for a long time. In 1975, I was out for eight months with a horrible back condition. And in the middle of that, Small used to come to visit me once a week at home. He was very gracious, wonderful, wonderful boss. And Bill would not allow me to do anything about my salary. What I had told Bill was that because I was contributing absolutely nothing to CBS, lying on my back for month after month, I didn't think they should pay me my full salary. And I recommended they cut it in half. And Small wouldn't do it. He said, you still need the money to pay the rent. And I never forgot that. And in 1980, when Bill went over to be the president of NBC, he called me. We were good friends. He called me and he asked whether I could come up and have dinner with him in New York. I said, sure. Not thinking about a switch. Bill and I were friends, and so he wanted me to have dinner. That was great. So I went up and had dinner with him. And at dessert, he said, I want you to come to NBC. I said, Bill, I'm quite happy at CBS. He said, I'll match anything that they're going to give you. That was not the issue. The issue was I was sort of content with CBS. And then um, he asked me, he reminded me of 1975, and I felt I had to do it and did it. Well, can I interrupt interrupt you a second? Because I was fascinated. I remember being a big have a big rooting interest. I wanted Roger to have it. Um, he, he was the chief substitute anchor for Walter Cronkite. You know, yes. he did the weekend shows. He did everything. Yes, he and, did. And then it went to rather, do you, do you do you remember what your thoughts were at the time, or, or did you have conversations with Roger about the situation? No, I never talked to Roger about it. I was an observer, really. 
a close-in observer, but an observer, he clearly deserved the job. He had been set up to do the Cronkite job. There's no question about that. Everybody assumed that was the case. But what happened was that Dan Rather, an equally ambitious, um, terrific journalist in his own right, done an extraordinary job at the White House and then at 60 Minutes. And he went to the CBS management and said, I want the Cronkite job, and if you don't give it to me, I'm going to ABC. And CBS did not want him to leave. And it was a very rough decision, terrible decision for them to have to make, but they did it, and they decided to give the job to Dan Rather. Yeah, somehow I feel that was... I don't know if it was the beginning of the end of the glory years, but um, I just, there's something about watching Roger on TV, you know, the passion, the writing, the, the insight. He, and I mentioned this twinkle he had in his eye. He, he yeah. just, there's, I, first of all, there's, no, there's nobody like him on TV anymore. No, but I tell you something, there's nobody like an awful lot of people on TV anymore. It has, you were suggesting this a moment ago, the industry itself has changed profoundly. And I don't want to go into that again. We've done it before. But that change is profound. It has to do with the people. It has to do with the background of the people. I said before that Mudd was a student of American politics. He then was hired to cover American politics. I had been a teacher. I had been a teacher of Russian history. Murrow hired me to cover Russia. That's what they used to do, but they don't do that anymore. I should remind our listeners that you were on The Political Junkie a few years ago talking about your book, Enemy of the People, Trump's War on the Press, the New McCarthyism, and the Threat to American Democracy. And when I was thinking of that, Marvin, I was just thinking that Trump may be gone, but, but Trumpism remains and, and the war on the press remains. Very much so. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think that people who feel that the absence of Trump as president profoundly changes the politics of the country, it does not. The politics remains essentially the same, except that we're all going to be very smart in another couple of years when we can measure what the absence of Trump as president actually meant for the Republican Party. I think right now we're caught in the middle of the drama and can't quite foresee the end of it. But we will in a couple of years. Oh, do I wish Roger was still here covering all this. I should let, also <laughs> let me announce that you have a new book coming out next month. Uh, the title is Assignment Russia, Becoming a Foreign Correspondent in the Crucible of the Cold War. This is about the early years of Marvin Kalb, right? Oh, very much so. This was the time between 1957 and 1961 when Murrow at CBS uh, hired me, very specifically because I was teaching Russian history at Harvard, and he wanted somebody who knew about Russia to be the correspondent for CBS in Russia. And so he hired me. Uh, I had to work my way up, starting as um, the writer of 
local WCBS radio news on an overnight shift. I learned a tremendous amount, but I think I was aware at the time that I was being groomed for something in Moscow, and I did my level best. I wrote a book about it. I put out a weekly uh, analysis of what was going on in Russia. And after a while, Murrow and Blair Clark and Bud Benjamin began to use me as CBS's specialist on Russian affairs. And finally, in 1960, uh, after, for whatever mysterious reason, they refused to give Larry LeSir a visa, CBS put my name in, they accepted me, and I went there and covered, at the very beginning, the failed Paris summit, Khrushchev blowing up the entire thing, and then immediately thereafter... That was the, the, that was the U-2 incident, right? That was the U-2 incident, exactly, Ken. And that was followed a week later by the death of that magnificent Boris Pasternak, and I was at his funeral and describe it in some detail in the book. It was a magnificent moment in Russian intellectual life, and I will never forget it. It was, it was magnificent. Marvin Kalb is a former newsman at CBS and NBC and was long an associate of Roger Mudd, the exemplary journalist and news anchor who died on Tuesday at the age of 93. Marvin, thanks so much for sharing your memories. It was just great. My pleasure. Thanks to you, Ken. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, complaints? Send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at thepoliticaljunkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening, and please stay safe. I'll see you soon.